So we are officially beginning our second semester of Jen Wilkins' study through Genesis. And um, today, we are supposed to jump right in to Genesis 12 through 16. That is a very meaty chunk. If you are wondering whether or not I'm going to try to cover all of those chapters, you'll actually be very surprised to hear that I'm going to also try to cover the first 11 before that. <laughs> and partly because as I was going through this, I realized there's such a strong theme here that is carried through from the first half of the book of Genesis into the second half, but starts to look a different way. Last semester, uh, as we um, were looking at Genesis, um, I, was, I spent a week with you uh, looking at Noah and um, both the blessing that he was given and also a little bit of the curse he sort of got involved in and created. And I want to build around that today and look all the way back to the beginning so that we can see how both sin is cyclical, but also God's blessing is eternal. Toward the end of chapter 16, which is where I will spend a little bit more time, an angel of the Lord asks Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? When I first read Hagar's story, I think I was maybe in my early 20s. It was something that just felt as if it didn't belong there in the story of Abraham. It was sort of a one-off. I didn't understand that it was a part, or a part of a bigger story and that her complicated life, that she had been exposed to both in blessing and curse, was ever bound into the story of Abraham. So to take a question like, where have you come from and where are you going? And think about that. I realize that it takes some reflection um, to be able to bring to one's mind an awareness of what has been seen, known, or experienced in the past. It takes that word remembering. And remembering is something that God calls us to do. He doesn't just ask us, he tells us. And we're told so in Isaiah. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So let's look at some of those former things long past all the way to creation. For me, remembering brings back to mind evidence of who God is through promise and blessing. And as we look back through Genesis, we realize that when we try to act like God, the curse often continues. To remember where we have been and to know where we are going, we ought to attend to, to these themes of blessing and curse that are prevalent throughout Genesis. In chapters 1 through 11, they tell the story of God and the world starting out with creation. You know, creation and the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel. That's how I learned it in a childlike way as an adult. 
And then we get to, this means father in sign language, the patriarchs of Israel. So chapters 1 through 11 tell the story of God and the world starting with creation. And God brings life out of darkness and order out of chaos, creating a good, beautiful world and then blessing all of its creatures. This first blessing, if you remember from last semester, my doing this, a blessing will look like this. Imagine a blessing being spoken like a benediction and coming out. This is the sign for blessing, okay? And when God creates the animals, he says, and he blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. I really love that sign. It almost makes me imagine um, gentle waves lapping up onto a shore, safe ground. But then we get to chapter three already, and humans encounter a deceptive creature in the garden who tricks them into eating from the tree of good and evil. And instead of blessing, this tree brings curse. Curse, this is the sign for curse non-dominant hand there below your chin and push out like this. You can do it if you want, if that's helpful for you to remember something. Curse. <coughs> I kind of think of like a dagger. Man attempts to seize God's blessing on his own terms by his own wisdom. And so begins the curse because instead of abundant life, man experiences scarcity, isolation, and death again and again and again as we go through those chapters. And recently, as I was thinking about this, like, oh, a blessing, gentle waves lapping up onto safe ground and ashore, then I thought, hmm, well, what would a curse be? And it made me think of a rip current. Probably most of you have seen the signs before if you've been on the Outer Banks um, of North Carolina. Rip currents um, are concentrated currents that will pull you away from shore. And they're actually quite difficult to see up close. They're easier to see from above. And um, they're dangerous and they're deadly. And if you try to fight one on your own, you likely will not win. Things won't go well. And I think of this curse and trying to fight it on your own, likely things will not go well. In chapter four, the curse spirals out of control. Men are not calling on the name of the Lord. Blood is shed, murder continues, and sin runs rampant. God is so broken with grief, so much so that he sends the flood, sparing Noah, and his family and some animals. And then we move on to chapter nine. God invites Noah into a covenant of blessing, to bless others, to bless every living thing, and to be blessed. Ah, a turning point. But then, in a mishap of drunkenness, Noah sins. And this causes one of his sons to sin. And then that sin that is perpetuated once again by the family cursing future generations of Noah's own family. Noah chooses to curse. He acts like God 
God never instructed him to curse others, and yet that's what Noah does in trying to act like God. Sin continues. And then finally in chapter 11, we have the Tower of Babel. Babylon rebelliously says, let us build a tower so we can make a great name for ourselves. And in their desire to be as great as God, they are scattered. And so in these first 11 chapters, the book of Genesis recounts God's good world and humanity's repeated rebellion. So how will God restore blessing to the world? The answer is found in Abraham's family at the beginning of chapter 12. So Babylon, in just the previous chapter, had tried to make a great name for itself. In contrast, God bestows a great name upon Abraham. And chapter 12 begins with that very, very special blessing. The Lord said to Abraham, to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God's blessing of Abram reflects the promise that God gave in the beginning just after the fall. God revealed a promise, a rescue plan, that a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And now this is where we see the future promise of God through Abram and his family. So one may be expectant that in the next several chapters, we are going to see amazing role models. Yes, as God commands, Abram enters the land of Canaan. He calls on the name of the Lord and builds altars to the Lord. In faith, he hears the Lord's promises and believes. He acknowledges the Lord is his shield and his great reward. He strategically and valiantly saves relatives from being carried off by enemies. And he recognizes the priest of the God Most High. And even he resists the spoils of war from a conniving king. The Lord casts a vision for Abram with a promise for the future, and Abram steps out in faith. However, we also see currents of the curse meander through the life and times of Abram and his progeny. When there is famine in the land, Abram sets out for Egypt, but without calling on the Lord first. And once he's there, he compromises his wife Sarai's safety and puts God's promise in jeopardy, and all the while taking advantage of Egypt's riches, which leads to the Lord inflicting disease upon the land. There are plenty of lapses in judgment and sins of self-reliance in Abram's life. But no matter the good deeds or wretched imperfections, how good or how bad Abram and his kin are, that's not the point here. What we ought to notice is how our human failure is paired with God's faithfulness 
and his ongoing commitment to rescue and bless despite our mess-ups. If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to go through the study book and summarize chapters 12 through 16 this week. And notice, pay special attention to when Abram calls on the name of the Lord and when he doesn't. Where are the streams of blessing or curse shaping people and places in the days of Abram? You can also listen to Jen's 45 minute talk on these chapters in great detail. They're amazing. Um, please do so if you haven't yet. But I'm gonna go ahead and jump to the very last chapter of this week, chapter 16. I'm gonna start at the beginning there. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. So after Sarai waits, and she can wait no more without taking matters into her own hands, she chooses to offer her servant Hagar. But as we know, this was not God's intent for marriage. In verse three, it says, and his wife Sarai took the Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her husband to be his wife. From a sermon series earlier this spring, I learned some interesting facts from Pastor Dave. This sentence actually uses the exact same Hebrew verbs and sequence as in Genesis chapter three, when Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband, eat from the forbidden tree. Here, Sarai took her slave and gave her to her husband, the curse repeating, snatching fruit that was not for the taking and doing so on one's own terms. Sin is cyclical. And in a move resembling Adam, listening to Eve in the garden, at Abram follows Sarai's lead in this mistrusting God's provision. Sarai and Abram begin to play the game, blame game almost immediately. And what ensues seems like a treacherous maelstrom. Hagar gets pulled in to the middle of it. She is abused, mistreated, and she runs away. Sarai is giving Hagar through ungodly means 
using manipulation instead of waiting and trusting in the Lord. Hagar is pulled out to sea. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? When Hagar is asked where, she's, where she comes from, does she realize the, both the communal curse of a riptide that she's been sucked into? I wonder what came to her mind. The homeland of Egypt, where she came from, the disease that was taking place as she was pulled away from there, being pulled into servanthood or knowing servanthood all her life, and it all being done under deception until Abram is asked to go. I wonder, does she see herself in the curse that also she creates by being raised to a different position in becoming a wife of Abram? Does she despise her mistress because all of a sudden she has advantage over her? It's interesting to see what can lead to hate, to deception, but also I think about how Hagar, when she's asked, where have you come from and where are you going, that she doesn't recognize the voice who is saying this, the angel of the Lord. Perhaps under Abram's household, she witnesses the covenant and the promise that God makes to Abram. And she recognizes the voice and she's able to look up and respond to the angel of the Lord. And she responds with courage, truthfulness, and answers. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord tells her to go back to your mistress and submit, submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord finds Hagar by a spring in the wilderness and tells her to return to Sarai. When we think ahead on this side of the cross, how many times can we think of when Jesus visits a woman beside a body of water, a well, a river, or in this case in the wilderness with Hagar, a pool. He, the Lord, the angel of the Lord also promises Hagar that he will give her innumerable offspring. And indeed, she will one day bear a son whom she must call Ishmael because God has heard her. And in response, Hagar calls the Lord El Roy, which means God who sees. And then finally, as this chapter ends, when Abram is 86 old, Hagar bears him a son whom he names Ishmael, indeed. So now at this point, I just think a little bit about 
this concept of being caught up in a curse and at the same time being part of a promise. And I think about Hagar and how here she is caught in this curse of a current. And yet she recognizes the Lord's voice. She's able to look up with courage. It was making me think about this rip current. And I don't know if you, like me when I was younger, learned that the way to get out of a rip current is actually to orient yourself, orient yourself and find land and then swim parallel to it to go out of the current. But I've recently learned that actually that is not the safest way to get out of a rip current. So public announcement um, that recently experts have determined that it's better to look up once you realize where you are, where you're coming from, and where you're going, and to not fight the current, nor try to swim out of it, but to rest in that uncertainty, and I think of have faith, and look up at the Lord. By looking up, it helps your body to flip up and float until you are out of that current and then are prepared to swim to safety with that energy that God has provided to you. So the next time you think of blessings and currents, I'm sorry, curses, um, I hope you'll have a chance to think about and recognize the blessings and the curses that are perhaps in your life right now, or that you may even be perpetuating? What are the curses that may be holding you back, either in a bigger communal sense or individually in your own life? And in turn, what are those blessings in which you need to call in the name of the Lord and give thanks for everything? I am thankful and remain thankful that on this side of the cross, we are so plainly instructed to be initiators and receivers of blessing, to recognize where curse is and to not be curse giving. And if or when we find ourselves caught in a current of curse, whether it is inherited or unique to our own doing, May we look up and float into faithfulness, into his eternal promise for us on the side of the cross. Luke 6, 28, bless those who curse you and praise for, pray for those who abuse you. And Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. May the curses be broken through the power of our Lord. Let us pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that you have delivered us from our former ways of thinking. You are inwardly renewing us day by day. Help us to look up 
and to see the big picture, to know what is ahead of us and what is behind us. And help us to know that we are not what we will be yet, but also that we are not what we once were. And Holy Spirit, fill our hearts so that we can become more like Jesus each day. On the cross, you were made a curse with every curse that is due to us, that we might be redeemed from the curse and be able to fully enter into your promise and your blessing. It is in your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.